Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Power Podcast. I'm your host, Emerson Hammer, with my co-host, Russell Steed. Uh, we're excited today. We have a good friend uh, with us today, Eric Child. Eric, do you want to introduce yourselves and kind of give us a little background to, to you and your, your experience? Sure, yeah. I've been working in retail and consumer products for about 16 or 17 years. Started with a company in the giftware category that went into almost every major retailer over the course of four or five years, grew it very rapidly. We sold that to a large conglomerate of um, of giftware brands. Uh, Then we started a company called Fiberfix which went on Shark Tank and we sold it through Home Depot and Lowe's and a bunch of other hardware stores. And we sold that a couple of years ago to JB Weld, which is kind of a long uh, um, standing business in the tapes and adhesives industry. And uh, we're now working mostly on toys. We have a couple of toy brands that we're uh, building and uh, doing that directly to consumers for the most part. Um, so you've gone from, eventually from take them into tape, retail. you've gone to tape, you were involved with Illuminable too, aren't you? Yeah, so we, Illuminable is one of our brands. We have a company called Spark Innovation and Spark actually has several brands within it. One is Illuminable uh, that was also on Shark Tank. We have another one. We have a couple products in the in the hardware category still that sell through Home Depot and Lowe's. Um, and then we have a couple of toy brands. So we... Uh, we like to dabble a little bit. We're, we're definitely stereotypical entrepreneurs. <laughs> yeah, you've gone from toys to toilets to hardware. So you're kind of doing it, diversifying quite a bit. Way to, way to we've go. We've tried it all. <laughs> oh, we actually had an nat- all-natural candy company for a little while, too, that we sold oh, to wow. an American licorice company last year. Well, so, I think I see we, a connection we, from all of that. That all just, I think marketing is probably exactly the same for all of it. You know, it's, uh, it's the same target market. <laughs> same yeah, target exactly. Market. It's all the same people. Yeah. Oh, man. That's amazing. No, that's awesome. Well, I did, a, I just realized I did a bad job introducing you. Eric is like, yeah, he's a good friend of ours. He's been a mentor. Uh, me and Rosa have worked personally with Eric. Uh, definitely is a, an awesome guy. Very helpful, very knowledgeable with his, his years of experience. So, yeah, we're definitely uh, excited to have him on there. Sorry, I just kind of threw you in and say, hey, introduce yourselves. But no, it's um, great. We're, we're new to the to the hosting side of stuff. But uh, yeah, I just assume everyone already knows you. I mean, you're you're the Eric Child. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're excited to have you on. Uh, so yeah, like I said at the beginning, we're going to kind of focus with uh, with you, Eric, on the retail side uh, of your experience. Uh, you definitely have, have helped a lot of brands get into retail and kind of helping scale businesses uh, to take their business to the next level. Uh, so first to kind of get into it, I guess kind of first, what is your take on the retail industry right now, where it's at? I mean, a lot of people are going to e-commerce, Amazon's booming, Shopify's booming. Um, a lot of our our, our, um, our listeners are, are most likely on the e-commerce side, um, thinking about getting into retail. Uh, is retail, do you think, a dying industry? Is there is there room for expansion in retail? Where do you see the retail industry going and how does that work with the e-commerce industry? Um, I think when people say retail is dying, they you've got to look at the you've got to look at specific categories of retail because you know yeah there's definitely areas that are dying like bookstores are practically dead right Amazon has decimated them mm-hmm. um, toy stores largely don't exist anymore you know so there's definitely areas of retail that have um, that have really suffered. Staples, some of the office supply companies have really been hammered, pet supply stores, you know, things like that. But if you look at like hardware home improvement with Home Depot and Lowe's and, and, and some of those, they're doing better than ever. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're crushing it. Um, Costco's crushing it. Walmart has 
really kind of figured out how to to um, combine their online experience and their in-store experience and they're crushing it. You know, so there's definitely retailers that are doing really well. And the bottom line is it's a little bit like the railroads, like railroads when they when when they sort of really built up in the 1800s and early 1900s, it, it, they sort of overexpanded. And then, you know, cars came along and other ways of getting around. And so trains, you know, so a lot of people said the train industry is dead. But the reality is there's a few train companies left and they're making money hand over fist because mm-hmm. they're still in need for trains. Right. And the same thing is going to happen with retail. Retail did get a little bit ahead of itself. Like there was just a huge expansion in the early 2000s and there's way too many storefronts. And so that's been slashed down dramatically and it will and it will continue to be that way for the next probably 20 years. But the, the retailers who are left will be stronger than ever because they'll have less competition. They'll have a corner on the market. And, you know, there's just some things that we're just not probably ever going to buy very effectively online. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's always going to be a need for some form of retail. Um, and, and, some, and, and people still like to go to like a, you know, a specialized store where they can get really good hands on. Um, instruction and so forth. Like I'm thinking of like bikes specifically. A lot of people mm-hmm. buy bikes online for sure. But, you know, if I want to like learn about bikes, I go to a bike shop and I talk to someone who really knows their stuff. Right. Yeah, so there's going to be always, a, there's always going to be a need for some retail. Yeah. I, uh, I'm working on a, a car right now actually. And I, no matter how much I YouTubed how to, I'm painting a car, no matter how much I YouTubed it, I still had no idea what the heck I was doing. So I went to a mm-hmm. body shop and talked to the guy there and I just bought whatever he told me because he's like, okay, right. yeah, I do this, 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 because he was so knowledgeable. So I think you're definitely right. Just that that sales experience definitely um, mm-hmm. adds so much value in person, going to the shop and communicating with the person face-to-face definitely adds a lot of value. That's not always a take. Take like Walmart. I don't go and talk to the Walmart guy and have a full conversation, like what toys can be best for me or whatever. Uh, maybe I should try it. We'll see what they say. Um, <laughs> but uh, but that there's definitely, I think you're right. The right industry, the right um, product could do very well in uh, in the retail space. So that's, that's yeah. good insight on that. And I like your, your insight into like certain retailers are gonna be stronger than ever. Like Costco, <laughs> since the pandemic started, like everybody is at Costco and it's funny you walk in there and if you make it out of there under a hundred dollars, like I've had people at the register, <laughs> like checking me out, like, Oh, you made it under a hundred bucks. Congrats. Like it's, it's like a win if you don't spend, <laughs> if you spend less than a hundred bucks. And so it's like, if, I, if you make it, if job. you make it out of there under $500, <laughs> seriously, it's a pretty they, successful trip. It's amazing how they just like the, the way they've merchandised everything. It's like, Oh, yeah. you know what? I've never thought about it, but I totally need one of those. Yeah. And so I can see them. I mean, they're booming. They're doing great. Yeah, so they're doing great. That stock's been on fire. So yeah, like I said, there's, there's going to be, there's going to be a need for retail. So mm-hmm. I don't think that you can have a complete myopic view that everything's going to go online. It's just not the case. You know, there's mm-hmm. going to be, there's going to be retail for a long time. Yeah. yeah so for, for our, for our listeners, for them, if they're in the e-commerce space, you kind of said, hey, here's our niche. Um, how would they know when they're ready to go retail? I mean, on Shark Tank, we hear multiple times where someone comes on Shark Tank and they say, hey, we need some we need some funding, we need some capital because we have this big PO from, from Walmart coming in. And I've heard the sharks multiple times say like, oh, that's actually a bad deal. You don't want to go into Walmart. Like that's going to kill your brand or your margins aren't good enough going to retail. Um, so an entrepreneur's mind, you think, hey, we made it because we're, we're going into this big box retailer. Um, so what would you say is kind of some of the criteria of when, when does your brand actually start looking to go that retail route or what are some of those key indicators that you might want to look at, say, 
okay, let's transition and, and take a more serious look in retail. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, if you're going to go into retail, you've got to make sure that you have your production ready to go so that you can that you can handle the scale that, you know, some of these big box retailers might might force on you. Um, and you've got to have your fulfillment ready to go. You've got to have, there's certain aspects of your business that if they're not ready to scale, then there's really no point in going and talking to the retailers because you're going to fall flat on your face and that's just going to make it so you're never going to get invited back. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you've got to make sure that certain aspects of your business are right. Um, in terms of whether retail is right for you, you know, that's, that's so product specific and so brand specific, and you've got to make sure that there's retailers that sort of align with your brand and your cost and your consumers and all those kinds of things. So not every product is right for retail, you know, some are really better online. I mean, the two toy brands we're working on right now, they're, they're in the $300 price range. That doesn't actually work very well in a retail setting. But it's perfect for an online study setting because the, the, the costs of marketing online are high. And so you've got to have a high enough basket size for a product mm -hmm. to work online. But $300 price point for a toy in a store, there's not many stores that can support that. Like Target, just Target and Walmart have kind of taken over the toy industry since Toys R Us disappeared. Mm -hmm. And neither of them have a consumer that's re really ready to fork out 300 bucks for a toy. It's just not, it's not the right setting for it. Costco could be a fit and we're actually talking with them, but so that's a good example of like making sure that what you have will fit with a particular retailer, you know, and if it doesn't, or if it's going to be really off brand, it's probably not worth doing, you know, but, but I think that if you, if you have some retailers that would be really well aligned with your brand, and your consumer, and you have the the scale and and can handle that that kind of scale, then it might make sense for you. You know, so I think those are the kinds of questions you got to ask yourself. Mm -hmm. So let's say there's a brand they've decided, okay, retail makes sense. We want to go after you know Costco or Target or Best Buy, whoever, and they haven't actually gone into the space. They haven't done any retail yet, but they're they feel like they're ready to scale. They've got the margins to do it. Um, what are maybe some of like the main things that brands don't think of, like that they overlook? Are they like hang tag packaging, um, you know, that kind of, how do, how do they get their product um, retail ready? Because like, you know, the experience that I've had with brands is that they'll be direct to consumer, boom. And so they've got packaging that works well for that. They've got um, kind of their, their fulfillment is set up for that. But in the end, they don't realize what a beast retail can be on those fronts. Yeah. I think the biggest mistake that most people that I've seen make is that they they want to go talk to the retailer. So they get a meeting and they go talk to the buyer and they don't have a proposal for the buyer. They haven't really thought through what mm -hmm. would be the right retail program for this product. And they're sort of expecting the buyer to do that for them. And that's not what buyers do. They really don't. They're not they're not very good at that. It's not what they don't have the time to spend on it. They haven't thought about your product like you have. They don't know the, um, the customer of your product as well as you do. And so, you know, when we go talk to a retailer, we walk in with a proposal that says, hey, we think that we should roll this out into 200 stores at this price point in this configuration on this display 
with this many units. And then if that tests well, then we'll move it out to another 800 stores in this configuration on a long, and on this timeline. And this is how we'll do it. And I'll, we come in with the whole plan thought through. Mm. So that and comes out as your side, as the brand, you're the one trying to, you're, you're kind of trying to tell the buyer, this is our rollout strategy and get them to buy into that is what you're exactly. saying. And, th and, they, and they're going to modify it and they're going to say, mm. oh, we don't want you to go into that many stores, whatever, right? But the bottom line is if you come in with a proposal and you've really thought through what a retail strategy looks like for you and what you think makes sense, it goes a long way in convincing the retailer that you actually know what you're trying to do and why they can help you. Yeah. You know, because if you walk in with no plan, they're, they're not going to come up with a plan. They don't even know your product or nor do they really care in most cases. <laughs> you know, they yeah. can live with it or without it. They don't they don't have to have it. So I think that's the biggest mistake I see is just not really thinking through, you know, your retail strategy and, and what makes sense for you and your brand and, and your consumers and everything else. Which know? I think is a great just overall takeaway as far as like sales strategy. When you're trying to get someone to buy into your brand, or you're trying to sell to someone, you want to make it as easy as possible. So e-commerce brands try to make it as easy as possible to purchase. Like you go on your cart optimization and you want to make it as few as clicks to, to purchase um, as you can, right? On e-commerce, you want to probably, I'm assuming you're kind of coming of kind of taking that method to the retail side, to the buyer. So the buyer is just like, okay, let me sign the paper or less that's, thinking on his part. So let's bear it. That's, that's exactly, that's exactly what we talk about is making it as easy as possible, as possible to say yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, because, you know, if you think about it, like if you're a buyer for Walmart, you might control a billion dollars worth of, of merchandise in the store. Well, if somebody's walking in with a, with a proposal for a $2 million, you know, retail program, the, I, I do not have the time as a buyer who manages a billion dollars of retail to mess around with a $2 million product. Hmm. So if you don't make it super easy for me to say, oh yeah, let's give that a shot. Um, all I got to do is sign the papers and we're off and running. Then mm -hmm. I'm not going to, it's never going to happen because I'm not going to spend the time to figure it out for you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it really so, is just about making it, making it very easy for them to say yes. So say I'm a new brand and I don't have the experience of knowing, okay, how many, like what's normal? What's, what's kind of like a, a realistic ask? Are there um, agencies or consultants? I know, I know that there probably are, but I guess what would you recommend for a brand that's just starting out that doesn't have experience there? Yeah, I mean, if you have no idea what a retail program rollout might look like, then you might be better off working through a distributor um, or not necessarily a distributor, but a manufacturer's rep, I guess. Um, somebody who can rep you into that retailer and knows what that retailer is looking for and how they're looking for it and what kind of program might make sense and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. We try not to work with reps if we can avoid it because we like to have that direct relationship with the retailer. And we like to control our own destiny, but we also have a lot of experience in working with retailers. And so we don't necessarily need that representation, but for someone who's just starting out and doesn't really have any idea what the retailer might be looking for, um, working with a rep might be a good idea. And all, and all the big retailers have many, many reps to choose from. I mean, just, so you can easily find some reps that work with that retailer in that category who can help take your product in and get you the meetings and, um, and see if there's a fit. Is so, there a, you use kind of new terminology as far, well, new terminology, but just kind of clarify the difference between like a rep 
a retailer and a distributor. Um, just kind of identify yeah. what they all do. So a distributor is someone who is typically typically going to um, buy product from you and then you know distribute it to the retail channel. So a good example is like Ace Hardware stores. Ace Hardware stores are not owned by Ace Hardware Corporation. They're owned by, you know, Jim down the street who has two Ace Hardware stores, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so because of that, um, you almost, in some cases, it's better to work through a distributor for retailers like that because you might find a distributor that buys product and then distributes it through, you know, 1500 ACE hardware locations. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've already got those relationships built. They've already got the infrastructure built and they can just buy product in bulk from you and resell it into that channel. So that would be a distributor. But when I'm talking about a manufacturer's rep, you know, a good example is target target is a very hard retailer to work with directly for whatever reason. And so even, even we who have a lot of experience in retail, we typically work through a manufacturer's rep to target because they're just hard to work with direct. And in that case, you know, we find like for toys, I've got a rep right now who has repped a bunch of products into target and he's helping us kind of get these products in front of the right buyers and so forth in case there's a fit. Um, and, and in that case, they just work off commission. So generally they, it's like a 10%, you know, deal. Sometimes you can get it lower. Uh, but basically you sign a deal with them and they have, you know, I try to limit their timeline to about a year. They want to have some, some period of exclusivity because they're going to go put a bunch of work into the relationship and they want to make sure that it's worth it. They'll push for like five years or sometimes eternity, who knows, but I usually try to limit it to like a year. And, you know, in that case, I give them a year and say, yeah, if you can go get us the right buyer and get us in, then, you know great, we'll pay you 10% on, uh, you know, on all the business that comes from that relationship for the next five years or something. Mm-hmm. Right. But, I, but if you can't do that within a year, then I'm taking, then I'm, then the, the, the deal's off. I'm going to go find somebody else who can, can work faster. <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm saying? That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Don't be tied too long to them. I guess right. that was, I was going to ask that question of like, is there ever a way where you start with a rep and then you figure out that relationship and you've kind of got more experience in retail and then you kind of, not that you circumvent, but that you are able to kind of graduate into a direct relationship. Yeah. And, he, and even the reps know that's probably the path it's going to take if your product is very successful in retail, because, you know, their value is really on the front end, getting mm-hmm. the relationship established and getting the program rolling. And so they like to have a little bit of a lockup period where they, they extract value from that program for a few years, but they know that ultimately if it's working, you're probably just going to, you know, cut them off and go direct because they don't add that much value later on. You know, some of them do. And if they do, then I keep them around because it's like, look, you're still adding a ton of value Mm -hmm. and you're making this relationship work and you're in the stores all the time, making sure that that the program's right, you're talking with the buyer every day because you live there, then, you know, it might be worth it to keep that relationship. But a lot of times their value is really on the front end. And so by year three or four, if it's working well, you just, you know, start going direct with the buyer, you know? Makes sense. Um, Definitely. Yeah, so that's the thing. I think you said, like, usually I think in, uh, in business, in my mind, in operations, I always think, 
everything should fit uh, fit to a certain path. Like every business, well, I mean, I always follow the same pipeline, but I think you kind of addressed there, like, hey, going to retail, it can look different for a lot of different brands, depending on where you're at and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, so in order for people to kind of get in front of those people, as far as like a brand trying to get into a store, if they're trying to find a distributor um, or going direct to retail um, or working with reps and things like that, where do you find these people? Are you just on LinkedIn looking for, hey, a buyer of Target? Um, is there some like networking channels or are you just talking to other brands that have sold into those channels before? Or where could you find someone to help you get into a, one of those, those box stores? Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, there's a lot of different ways to do it. LinkedIn is a, good, is a good example. I mean, you can go and try to just search by, you know, whatever that retailer is and find dozens of people that work there and email them. Um, we actually subscribe to a service called Hoover's that has a lot of executives from every company, every, every company in the country, really. There's another service called, I think it's called the chain store, uh, chain store link or something that has, you know, contacts at retailers. It's really not that hard to find contacts at retailers it may be hard to find the exact buyer that you should be talking to. Mm -hmm. And so I usually send off a bunch of emails to a bunch of different people that work in that organization and say, Hey, we have this awesome product. Let me give you a really quick elevator pitch on it. And we're looking for the right buyer for this category. Can you please help us find out who that is? And, you know, if you stay with that, sometimes it takes weeks for any of that to come to fruition. But if you stay with it and you keep you keep hitting more and more people in the organization, eventually someone will forward to the right buyer and eventually the right buyer will contact you and say, hey, we don't we're not looking for anything like this or this sounds interesting. Let's let's set up a meeting, you know, mm -hmm. one of those two things. And um, and so, you know, it's, a, it's a, a lot of times it's just brute force, just staying with it, being consistent, you know, mm -hmm. and just um just just continually hitting that retailer until you get the right person and the right person's willing to talk to you. you know? Yeah, no, no, that definitely makes sense. Um, to kind of, sorry, I'm, I wanna, I'm interested on, um, I've, I've talked to other brands about uh, maybe sw okay, switching gears here and talking about mono brand stores versus going into a distributor or like a big box retailer. Like I, that's, mm -hmm. that's a discussion that I've heard, you know, quite a few brands have and it's worked really well for some brands, but obviously it's not the right thing for all. Is it, when would you consider doing a mono branded store versus just going into a big box re retailer? Well, I think the primary consideration for um, doing a mono branded store is if you have a big enough breadth of product line, right? Because if you just have, if you just have, if your if your whole um, strategy is based around innovation on a certain product, that's not really enough to create a store by itself. But if you've created a brand that really has brand identity and you have a breadth of products within that brand, then a mono branded store might make sense. You know, so I think it's kind of first and foremost, are you a product or a brand? And if you're a brand, do you have enough products to fill a storefront that would actually make it look like that brand is is a complete brand, not just, you know, not just a one one trick pony? basically you know yeah. so i think i think that's big i think that's a, kind of the biggest consideration before you even decide whether the economics work yeah i think during the holidays you see it quite a bit the malls are just shopping in general 
those pop-up shops or whatever is probably a pretty good way to kind of test that out to say, hey, do you go all in on a store or just this holiday pop-up? Is it profitable? Does it work? Do we have the bandwidth to actually support this? Um, and kind of set the expectation if you're going to go the mono branded, branded store route, I think it's probably a good way yeah, to, the, to break yeah, into the pop up, it. The pop-up is a good way to test it. And really, if you're something that's really seasonal, it might be better to stay with that strategy yeah. long term, you know, just do the pop-ups during holidays or whatever. Because if you can't, if there's no reason for people to come into your store throughout the rest of the year, you're paying a lot of rent for nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. Uh, good old landlords. Um, what I, what I would say on that, just uh, popping in my mind right now, as far as on the operation side, uh, something that I've seen a lot of brands when they're transitioning over from their e-com to retail is labeling and, um, barcodes, um, in general, a lot of people, you use your SKUs or SKUs or, or your internal, um, identification tracking for, for a certain product. But uh, when you go into a retail, you're gonna have to get that as a registered barcode, not just a number you made up, but actually registered. Um, so GS1 is where you register all those, those barcodes at and you get assigned basically your, your number, you get a prefix. Honestly, it's for making a barcode. I feel like it's pretty complex just for someone to assign you a, a number for your product. Um, but I think that's a, a huge thing that a lot of brands overlook is making sure you have the proper documentation of what your product is. Um, and the labeling, as long as that's, that's accurate, you have to make sure that's accurate to be successful in, in retail. Because when they're going through, if they're going checkout and there's not a barcode, and it's not like you can't do that. You have the barcode and everything. So make sure your products have barcode. They're properly registered and they label and they meet the criteria of the, the brand you're working with. Um, in general, I think it's something people overlook quite a bit. Yeah, I think another thing that people overlook when they're going from online to in-store is kind of the packaging and presentation. You know, when you're selling through online, your packaging and presentation is all in HTML. It's on your website, right? Yeah. But when you go into when you go into retail, your packaging and presentation is actual physical packaging and presentation. And you've got you've got to really think through that and make sure that you're you know, that you know how to talk to customers off of a shelf and how to yeah. convince them to to take a to, to closer look because you only in a re, on a re, in a retail setting, you only get three seconds or less um, of a of a consumer's attention. Uh, before they move on to something else. And so you've got to be able to tell your story really succinctly and colorfully and all that kind of stuff, you know, that make it pop off shelves. And a lot of people have never really given that any thought that are coming from an online world because you just don't have to do that. You know, it's yeah. not the same environment. Yeah. yeah. Um, what would you say have been some of, with you and your, your relationships What's been your more beneficial partnerships? One of your biggest wins, I guess, as far as like a long-term relationship or a healthy relationship with a with a buyer or a retailer. What does that look like, and what has been some of your experiences with that? Well, we've had um, we've had good experiences with most of them and bad experiences with most of them. And <laughs> okay. so, so even within the same same retailer, and the reason is because it's it's very people specific. You know, you have one buyer that comes along that's really great and loves your product and champions your product, and then they get switched and the next buyer doesn't give you the time of day. And, you know, so it can be the same. It can be really up and down with, buy, you know, depending on the buyer you have. And the buyers who are always the best are the ones who are, they tend to be a little bit younger and they're trying to establish, they're trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying to establish themselves in their career and they're looking for, you know, a, a great product that will help them do that. Mm -hmm. And because, because a buyer can kind of make their name for themselves in the organization off the back of a, of an awesome product that does well. Mm. And so, you know, if you get somebody who's ambitious and looking for, 
um, you know, a way to kind of build their career, uh, they can really help take your product places. But then there's also the opposite kind of buyer, which is someone who's, you know, been there for 20 years, is not really looking to rock the boat, doesn't want to, um, you know, doesn't want to have choices their, around, doesn't want to have their name coming yeah. up in executive media. <laughs> Fly under the radar. And so, yeah. And they're terrible buyers because you can't get them to do anything new or innovative or take a risk or do anything aggressive. And so that can be frustrating. The good news with retailers is they switch out the buyers pretty regularly, especially the big mm. ones do. And so if you have a great buyer, that's terrible news because they're going to change at some point. And if you have a terrible buyer, then that's good news because you know, <laughs> they, they probably won't be in their position for too long. They'll, they'll, they'll bring somebody else to manage that category at some point. You know? That's funny. <laughs> get used to change, huh? Yeah. Yeah. You got to yeah. get used to change for sure. Uh, interesting. Um, with so, that, I yeah, go for it. Yeah, take it away, Emerson. Uh, I was gonna say, oh, with that managing those relationships, there's a lot of moving pieces um, that go into that. Um, me dealing with the supply chain, we have like our WMS to try and keep track of all the orders and everything. Uh, what does your like tech stack, I guess, look like for managing these relationships and these deals um, for for retail? Is it a different kind of software you're looking into? Or are you doing this all like QuickBooks or? Or kind of what's your tech stack or the tools you're using most almost the time? Yeah, if, when it comes to retail, almost all of the retailers still use EDS, which is this very old protocol for sending orders and sending order confirmations and shipping notices and all that kind of stuff. And so for almost all of our retail business, we use EDS and we you know integrate that with uh, QuickBooks and kind of keep track of the books and everything and the inventory and all, all that through that. But yeah, you've got to get, if you're going to go into retail, it's almost a given that they'll require you to get some kind of EDS um, provider. Some of the small retailers don't. And so you can kind of get by without it. If you're dealing with small retailers, only have a handful of stores or something, but anytime you go into a big one, you're going to have to have EDS. I, I honestly hate that. I mean, everyone else is doing API. And like it's open plugin, it's cheaper. I mean, the EDI providers are going to say something different, and they're like, "Oh no, we're actually really good." I mean, they're they do good, but I was like, "Why do you cost so much?" <laughs> but you know, open <laughs> so APIs, I, I love an open API. It's easier just to connect, um, yeah. Instead of just mm -hmm. just paying for a third party service to just manage a, a connection point between softwares talking. Uh, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous, but there's a lot of tradition in retail, and that's one of them. You know, mm -hmm. EDS is a big tradition there. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, awesome. Well, basically, go for it. <laughs> Sorry, uh, this has been an awesome conversation, and I just wanted to kind of ask you what uh, kind of if you just summed it up. If you're talking to a brand, what are like some actionable steps that they can take right now to get ready for retail? If that's something that they think they want to do in the future, kind of what? How do they focus themselves towards figuring that out and, and kind of taking steps that direction? Um, so yeah, if you're gonna if you want to going to retail, you got to think about how you're going to present your product in a retail setting. You've got to make sure that you can handle the kind of scale. If you go into a Walmart or a Home Depot or a Walgreens or somebody like that, or even a Costco, you got to realize that you can go from zero to 60 overnight. I mean, it can happen really fast in terms of the numbers. So you've got to make sure that your business can scale. 
And there's a lot of things that go into scale, right? Production, fulfillment, uh, capital, working capital, inventory, you know, all those kinds of things. It's all got to be kind of ready to roll. Now, if you're already doing really well online and you have all those things in place and you're already scaling, then that's much less of a concern. But if you're not, if you haven't really scaled those operations, then um, that's a big consideration. So yeah, how you're gonna how you're gonna present it on shelves? How you're gonna get it to pop on shelves? Um, do you have the infrastructure to actually support a retail rollout? And then really do some research on what a retail rollout would look like or should look like for your product, so that when you go and talk to your retailer, you're knowledgeable on it and know what you're trying to do, and and why you want to be there in the first place. And you know, really, like if you think about it from a buyer's perspective, most buyers are kind of middle management. They aren't looking to take big risks. And so you've got to sort of come to them with the idea of you need my product and here's why. And if you don't have it, here's why, then there's really no point in them bringing your product in, you know? Mm -hmm. So you've got to give that some thought. Like what is, what is it about your product that requires that it's on my shelves? You know, is it because um, all of my competitors have it or are getting it? Is it because you guys are going on a nationally broadcast television program and I'm going to need, mm. I'm going to have a bunch of people come in to ask for it. Is it because you're doing so well online that you've built a community and I can tap into that community and automatically start to get sort of value from, mm. from your brand. You know, there's, you've got to, you've got to have a reason. I have so many, I hear so many people say, I can't believe this retail buyer won't take my product. And I'm thinking, why would they like what, what's, you know, I know you think it's a good product, but if I'm a buyer, what's the compelling reason for me to take your product and put it on my shelves and take a risk. Mm -hmm. Right. So you've got to give that some thought and, and make sure you have a good answer for that. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. That's because really in the end, you're, they are your customer. The buyer is your customer. Then you have to really sell them on why they want your product. It's totally different than direct consumer. You're, you know, yeah. you're trying to sell them why, how this is a great the, the, gamble for them. One other, one other point that a lot of people don't think about is, you know, sometimes it can be pretty easy to get your product on shelves and can be really hard to move it off of shelves, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so you've got to give that some thought too. Like if it goes on shelves in 1600 stores or something, are you going to actually be able to, to create the kind of sell through that that retailer needs to keep it on shelves? You know, do you mm -hmm. have a big enough audience? Are you advertising in some other way to try to drive volume? uh to those stores you know because it's if you if you get on shelves but it never sells you won't be there for more than six months at the most you know what i mean it's just you'll be you'll be right back out so you've yeah. also got to think about your strategy for how you move it from move it off of shelves how i guess a question on that i don't I would want to take away but a question on that how do you maybe um what's a collaboration look like with you and a retailer to move it off the shelf because granted i mean like if you're a target they have their marketing you're doing um, but you obviously want that off the shelf. What are some levers you might have as a brand to work with the retailer to actually make sure it's successful in stores? Mm -hmm. So a lot of retailers have kind of um, marketing strategies for their own products. You know, um, they have circulars you can advertise in. They have in-store promotions that you can participate in. You know, there's all of those kinds of things. But they also, and, and so you should do those if you, if you, if you think it will help, you know, but, uh, but you also need to be thinking about your own 
you know, um, marketing strategy outside of that retailer's doors. Because if you've got, if you've got a lot of marketing going on online and things like that, that will help drive volume to those stores. Mm-hmm. And so, and they're going to want to know that, like, what are you doing to help promote selling the product? Mm-hmm. You yes. know, so that, so that we're not doing all of the work um, or that it's just not going to sell period. Are you going, are you then, like talking a little bit about like the halo effect of your advertising or are you directly advertising? You can get this at Lowe's or you can get this at Home Depot. Um, a little bit of both. I mean, if, if you can, if you can drive direct traffic that sometimes can be more effective, but just mm-hmm. advertising your brand in general and having a strategy for brand awareness uh, will definitely help a lot of the, a lot of times in on, online stores or in online, um, you know, sell through the other thing that we have done several times is people never really think about this but when you let's say you have a buyer that says yeah we're going to roll you out to all 5,000 walmart stores well that's great but every store has a manager and if that manager doesn't put your product out on shelves or doesn't put it in the right place or doesn't keep it stocked your sell through is going to suffer and Mm -hmm. it's just going to reflect poorly on you and your product it's not going to reflect poorly on them because the buyer might not even know that's happening. So at times we've actually had people call into stores, you know, just, we'll just have, we'll just do it like a, like a two or three week calling blitz where we call every store and talk to the manager over that department and say, Hey, did you get our product? Um, do you have it where it's supposed to be? Um, how are you replenishing it when it, when it, when it sells through? You know, just asking simple questions. You're not badgering them. You're not putting a lot of pressure on them. But just asking simple questions can make sure that the compliance in stores is really high. And if that compliance is high, that's really going to help yourself through too. That reminds me, in my uh, starving student days at college, I had this app that would pay you to go to stores and take a picture of a product at the store. And I was like, dude, I can make like four or five bucks whenever I went shopping to Walmart or whatever got my groceries. I just pulled that app out and I could do two or three assignments. And I make like 15 bucks shopping. So I just went and took a picture to verify um, that it was there back in college. Like these suckers are paying me 15 bucks to go take a picture. But I mean, that definitely, <laughs> as you're saying there, I mean, if you're calling each store um, to do this, and I make like, yeah, two, three, four, five bucks just for taking a picture of it. Um, definitely is value to the brand of you yeah. knowing, Hey, it's where it needs to be. Um, and they're on the other side saying, this sucker's taking pictures of our products. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought it was just like low-hanging fruit for a college student. I can't remember the name of the app, but I'm sure you could just Google. Take you can look it up and put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I love that. But yeah, that, that, compliance, that compliance in stores is a big deal. And most, most new brands to retail never think about that. Yeah. You know, and they, want, and they wonder why their product's not selling. And it could be that 60% of the stores don't even have it on shelves. There's it's nowhere for, for people to even buy it. You know? That's crazy. Yeah. That's, that's so, how I realized that could happen. Wow. Um, well, on, on that note as well, I guess, again, me coming from the operations mind, something that is a pain point on the logistics side is not just they're so uh, particular about you shipping product to them, has to be labeled right, right pallet height, right quantities, everything has to be like perfect or you can get fined for shipping incorrectly with their method to their warehouses. It's also on the receiving side. They're so particular about how you ship product there and you just get crap coming back to you. If it's a return um, products aren't in the original packaging, like they don't give a rip of how your product comes back. It could have been totally resellable when the customer returned it, but they just kind of threw it in the back packaging's crushed, products ripped or whatever. 
and you just get a hodgepodge of, of stuff coming back at, at nomadic. I know we've had some instances where we've sold to a retailer and we have a piece of luggage and we'll get a Samsonite back by bag coming back instead of a nomadic bag. And there's like, <laughs> Oh, this was a return. And you're like, that's not even our product. Like, how do we get this? We've, we've had drones come back to our warehouse from retailers and like, Oh, this is in your returns pile. I'm like, we don't sell drones, but okay. Um, so just that reverse logistics. I mean, that's why you're seeing those like pallet auctions are so, so prevalent right now because the return logistics on, on wholesale is just, it's, it's very difficult to manage and, and keep track of. Um, and you can, you can buy a hodgepodge of just returns because people don't know what to do with it. Cause it comes back in such uh, who knows the condition of it. Cause it just isn't really managed very well. So I guess when you're maybe a, a tip on that is when you're negotiating with retailers, have that returns percentage, know your return percentages and, uh, and look at the whole the whole book of business. What's this retailer actually offering? What kind of deals can we we make, including with hey, how much of our return rate do we have? Um, and probably work on those numbers as well with your your rep as well. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole science around negotiation of terms with retailers that we would be a boring conversation, but there's a lot to that too. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think the boring stuff is freaking sexy at the same time. The people that can master the boring can make the money. I feel uh, so. <laughs> So let's make boring sexy now. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll get you out of here um, to kind of wrap up. Uh, Eric, on your side, thanks so much for, for joining us and for participating yeah, and sharing thank you. Your, your knowledge with us in our community. Um, yeah, what no is problem. something our Love audience you. can do to, to help you? What is something you're in need of or anything you're looking for that, that we can help you out with? Well, so Spark Innovation, we like I said, it's a platform for you know launching, buying, acquiring, selling, retail products. The reason we built Spark is because I had sold a couple of retail companies before that and realized once I sold them that if I was going to start a new one, I had to start I had to start everything from scratch. I had to build everything from scratch again, all the operations, all the logistics, everything. And it's like, why would I want to do that? Why don't I just sell off brands and then I you know, sort of keep the platform in place? Mm. And so that's what Spark is. It's a platform for consumer products. And we're always on the lookout for new consumer products and brands that, you know, we might be able to operate better than the than the originator or the than the original entrepreneur. And we've we've done a lot of deals where we've bought companies, licensed companies, licensed brands, you know, um, and and built and grown those. And so we're always on the lookout for that. So as your um, so as a as a plug to your audience, if they have a business that they think might be an interesting fit for Spark, or they know of someone who who has a business that might be an interesting fit for Spark. Uh, have them reach out to me. I'd love to talk to them. We're we're always open to to new ideas and 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 potentially new brands. So uh, just throw that out there. Cool, sweet. sweet. That's awesome. Yeah, um, yeah. Just another plug for Eric. He's a legit entrepreneur. He's on Shark Tank, so that proves how entrepreneurial he is, I guess. <laughs> uh, and definitely has helped a lot of brands, yeah, get elevated to the next the next level. So uh, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time. All right. Thanks, guys. Right. Thanks, yep. guys. Thank you. Right. We'll see you.